You know, we human beings pride ourselves on our abilities and things that we can do. I mean, is there anything that man cannot do if he sets his mind to it? However, there is something that man cannot do. The Bible makes that very clear. And it may shock you as to what that something that man cannot do is. It's found in John 6 and verse 44, words of Jesus. And he said, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice that no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him. Now, this is a fascinating statement, and I don't know where you, you know, how your mind fits into the words of Jesus. I don't know if you're willing to accept this or not, because it sort of slaps in the face of what I call mainstream uh, churchianity, where it's almost like an illusion that there's just all kinds of room for people to raise their hand and just, you know, all heads bowed, all eyes closed. Now, if you accept Jesus into your life, raise your hand. It seems like there's just all kinds of room for people to come to God. And yet Jesus said, no man can come to me, except there's an exception there. The father, which has sent me, draw him. Now, what I want to talk about today is those the Father is not drawing. Because consider this, if the Father is not drawing the man, where does that leave the man? Is That Really in the Bible presents the teaching ministry of David Freeman. I've been reading a book, If God So Loved the World, Why Are So Many People Going to Hell? It's an interesting book. Uh, It says this in the introduction. It says, toward the end of a long airplane flight, the flight attendant sat down next to me and my wife and began to chatter. When she found out that I was a church pastor, a troubled look came across her face. Her father had just died. He hadn't been a Christian, nor had he led a particular good life. After the funeral, she talked to her priest, and the priest said that her father was not saved, and he was burning in hell. With tears in her eyes, she asked me, do you think my dad is burning in hell? Now, whatever I answered had to be a quick answer because there was only a few minutes left in the flight. The flight attendant had struck at the heart of a burning issue. Only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian. Using traditional Christian teaching as a guide, it would seem that God the Father and Jesus Christ are losing about 80% of the world's population to hell. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever contemplated this issue? those that the Father is not drawing? Because I I come back to this statement that Jesus made. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. That's one of those absolute statements that you read about Jesus. You don't need a minister, a priest, a church to interpret this for you. You just need to read it at face value as to what Jesus is saying. No man can 
come to me unless the Father which has sent me draw him. Now, what about the fact that only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian? Now, if you live in America, you have a tendency to think, oh, no, 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 that that can't be right. I mean, Christianity has dominated the airways. It's dominated the landscape. I mean, after all, there's 450,000 churches in America. There's 650,000 preachers that dot the land uh, of America. So we have a tendency to look at America and say, oh, nearly everyone is somehow, some way, religious. But as you look at the world's population, now I'm talking about the world's population, that only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian. That's what I'm talking about. Because as you look at the world's population, Eastern religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, Muslims, you know, China, Africa, yeah, I mean, it it gets narrowed, narrowed down to only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian. Now, let's go back to America, because there is this illusion that in America, you know, nearly everybody has some kind of relationship with God. I think it would be interesting to do a survey in America and ask the question, do you identify yourself as a Christian? I think you would be amazed, maybe shocked, at the people who would answer, no, I do not. You see, our culture is changing. I read a statistic one time, and and, and you know how statistics are. You can get about any kind of statistic you want if you just type in the right search words. But uh, it said that 100 churches are closing each week in America. Yeah, 100 churches are closing each week. And it said that a lot of these churches are becoming maybe like a daycare center or a a lot of them are being turned into breweries or bars uh, where people can go to and and or or maybe a bed and breakfast but I don't know if that statistic is true or not but it is shocking if it is but all you need to do is just do an experiment go by a church this Sunday afternoon around 12 when it's letting out and take a look at what you see coming out of the building What you will see in most cases is a lot of elderly people, older people, baby boomers who are coming out of that church, and you have to ask the question, who will replace those people when they die off? Now, if I look at what has happened to religion in just my lifetime on this earth, I'm 57 years old, and when I grew up in my teen and early uh, 20s, You know, you had the Bible Belt of America. You had the Pentecostal movement. You had evangelism. You had, you know, Billy Graham dominating the airways and TV and radio. And and religion was a huge influence. Well, that influence today no longer exists. Not in the same way. Not in the same way. And so I, I come back to, okay, what about the fact that only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian. What about the 80%, the other 80%? What happens to the 80%? Now, believe it or not, mainstream Christianity, and I don't know where you fit into your doctrine and belief system or not. I mean, I'm not sure, people listening to my voice, but mainstream Christianity has an answer as to what will happen to this other 80% who are not Christian. And it's found in all places in a parable. 
Well, let's take a look at this parable. It's found in Luke 16 and verse 23. And it says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and sees Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, what mainstream does is they take a parable of Jesus that is really not even about the subject of Gehenna fire. I mean, it really is not. I mean, that that word there, and in hell, if you look up the original uh, meaning of that word hell, it is Hades. It's not Gehenna fire. It's, It's Hades, which means the grave. So he's coming up in a resurrection. But what mainstream does is is they take this parable and they turn God into a vengeful God that's going to destroy 80% of humanity in a lake of fire. Did I say destroy? Did I say destroy? No, 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 let me correct myself. Who is going to torment, torture 80% of humanity in a lake of fire forever? Okay. Now, there's mainstream's answer as to, okay, what happens to this other 80% that does not believe or does not claim to be Christian? Now, let me just say this about this, this parable. You never take a parable to build a theology. You just don't. That's a no-no. That's something that you absolutely do not do. You never take a parable to establish theology or build a doctrine. It's just, it's unheard of. It's something that you do not do. Parables were riddles. They had to be figured out. And in fact, you've been lied to about the Bible. You've been told all of your life that Jesus spoke in parables to make the meaning more clear, to make it more understandable. No, that's not the meaning. That's not the reason Jesus spoke in parables. In fact, if you look at the Bible, Matthew 13, verse 10 the disciples were beside themselves. They just said, okay, Jesus, why are you speaking in parable? I mean, they're not getting it. We're not getting getting it. They're not getting it. You know, you, uh, a sower goes out to sow seeds, and it falls on this ground and that ground. Okay, what is the meaning? And so they asked Jesus in Matthew 13 and verse 10, and the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? They're not getting it. In Matthew 13 and verse 13, Jesus' answer is, therefore I speak unto them in parables because... They seeing, see not, and hearing, they don't hear, and neither do they understand. They're not going to get it anyway, so I might as well speak to them in riddles. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Well, I come back to this statement, this other statement that Jesus made in John 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Now, I want to digress a little bit and, and talk about the largemouth bass. The largemouth bass lays millions of eggs. Many of her eggs will be eaten by the male that fertilizes them. Now, that's a strange concept when you think about it. Okay, the male's going to eat most of those eggs. But anyway, uh, most of her eggs will be eaten by brim or other small fish. Of those who do hatch, most of those tiny fish will be eaten by minnows and brim. As they mature to minnow size, most of those will be eaten by adult bass. Only a tiny fraction of the eggs originally laid will become mature bass. She has to lay millions of eggs in order to get 
very few mature fish. Now the question is this, is this how God works? Is, is God doing the same thing? That in order to bring sons into his kingdom, God has to put billions of us on this earth and allow for wastage. Yeah, 80% of human wastage. Now, think about that. If, if you believe that, and I, I don't know what you believe, but what does that say about God? I mean, is your God a God that would waste billions of real people to achieve his objective of a few sons into his kingdom? And what makes matters worse is all those billions of people who were not saved will be tormented in a lake of fire forever. I mean, not only were they human wastage, the wastage is going to get tormented, according to mainstream teaching, in a lake of fire forever. You know, we suffer, we hope, we love, we create, and for what? I mean, what is this life all about? Are you just another vain experiment where God is desperately trying to achieve his objective of a few sons in his kingdom? Are you no more value than a fish egg, is the question. You know, First Timothy 2 and verse 3, it says, For this it says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now, how? How is he going to do this if, if your view of God is that he just, he's going to waste all of these human potentials? How, how will God do this to have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? Well, let me explain it. He does it according to his timing, which involves more than one resurrection. Let me repeat that. He does this according to his timing, not according to the preacher's timing, not according to the evangelist's timing, not according to, oh, won't you give your heart to the Lord and come down to the... Not according to that. He does it according to his timing, which involves more than one resurrection. And when it's all said and done, yeah, there will be very few who will have to be destroyed in a lake of fire. Ultimately, there will very, be very few who will reject their chance for salvation. But my point is, God is going to see to it that everyone gets a chance for salvation. But it's according to his timing, which involves more than just one resurrection. You see, God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. As I said, he's going to see to it that everybody gets a chance for salvation according to his timing. Now, what most of you believe is this. Most of you believe something that I used to believe, and that is you believe you have to have your chance for salvation in this lifetime. That's your three score and 10 or four score years, 70 or 80 years, that you somehow during that period, you, you have to, you know, invite Jesus into your heart. You have to raise your hand and accept Christ. And if you don't, you're lost. Okay, most of us believe that. Now, I say we believe that, but I'm not sure religious people do believe that. Because, you see, if you really believe that, if you as you look out and you're driving down the road maybe and you see all these vehicles, and you know these, these vehicles are not just self, 
driven that somebody's driving that there's people in those vehicles there's people walking those crowded shopping malls there there's millions of people if you believe that a person you know if you really believe that a person had to to accept christ in this lifetime you wouldn't be sitting in church wasting your time. You wouldn't be living in an air-conditioned home. You would be out there. Instead of a Walmart greeter, you would be a saver of soul greeter. Every person that comes in to Walmart, you'd be trying to save them. If you really believed that if a person doesn't get their chance in this lifetime, and if they don't get that chance, they're going to burn in hell for all eternity, you, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. You wouldn't be taking your vacations. You wouldn't be sitting around wasting your time watching TV. You wouldn't be entertaining yourself. You would be out there knocking on doors trying to get people saved. So I I, I don't even think religious people believe this in their heart of hearts that uh, that you you have to have your chance for salvation in this lifetime. I I don't even think they believe that in their heart of hearts because it, it, I say that based on their actions, or maybe I should say lack of actions, that they're not doing anything about the situation is what I'm saying. Now, have you ever known of people whose life was a total waste or so it seemed? Family members, loved ones, someone you knew, untimely death, sins, mistakes, bad choices. They just messed up their entire life. Have you ever known of anyone whose life seemed to be a total waste? Well, let me tell you something. God wastes nothing. People who die without knowing Christ die an an unfinished work. God's not through with them. You know, Jesus fed 5,000 and the disciples came and said, look, we only have five loaves and two fish. And he he multiplied it and fed five thousand. And when he was finished, he he gathered. They gathered. He told his disciples, "Gather up the fragments." And there were twelve baskets of fragments. I love that story because it reveals that God wastes nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, how will God save all those wasted eggs? People who die in unbelief. Yes, people who die in their sins. Yes, people who were not saved. People whose lives seem like a total waste, how will God work this out? Well, the answer is in Romans 11, 11 in verse 32. It says, For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. There are people who are shut up in unbelief. Now, whose fault is it? Well, God is the one who has shut them up. Now, the question is this, why? If God's objective is to save the world now, why would he shut people up in unbelief? It's counterproductive, you know? I mean, you're shutting people up up in unbelief, and yet you want to save the world now. It's counterproductive. Well, it it becomes by your, your, your thinking is not right. You've got this concept in your head that God is desperately trying to get everybody saved right now. Now, I do believe he is calling a first fruit right now to salvation. But no, he, he's as far as desperately trying to get everybody saved, that's another concept that we have to deal with. But, but we're, the question we're dealing with right now is, if God's objective is to save the world now, why would he shut people up, some people up in unbelief? Well, here's the answer. In Hebrews 2 and verse 26, it says this, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. He that despised Moses' law died with, without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherein he was sanctified an, an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You see, here's the thing. Willful sin without the knowledge, with the knowledge, excuse me, willful sin with the knowledge of the truth is simply the end. But if God concludes that people sinned ignorantly in unbelief or weakness, there's room for mercy. So from God's perspective, it's safer not to show them truth for the time being. You see, because if I show you, from God's perspective, if I show you truth and you reject it, well, that's pretty much your chance for salvation. Now, it's not that there's not mercy and grace. There's always mercy and grace. But I'm just saying when people reject truth, that's it. I mean, that they have rejected the truth that God has given them. And so God resolves to, I'm not going to show them truth right now. I will call them later. You know, a minister friend of mine said one time, God will not call a person one second before they're ready to accept. God looks at the heart. And if he looks at the heart and says, oh my, that person is a hard-hearted person. They're going to reject every truth I send his way. Well, guess what God chooses to do? He just says, well, I'm not going to call him right now. I'm not going to draw that person to me right now. I will draw him later at a later time. In Romans 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who, or who has been his counselor? I remember the first time, you know, you know how you read scriptures over and over and then one day you finally get it. You know, one time I, I was driving down the road and I finally got, it finally sunk in this verse where God, where Romans says, for God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon them. And I, it, I, it don't, it, it rang like a bell. I mean, it was like, you mean to tell me that God can shut people up in unbelief and then call the, and have mercy on them at a later time? Oh, it was, it was beautiful. It was one of the few times, I'm, I'm not very an emotional person, but it was one of the few times that I just sort of broke down because I thought, wow. How merciful, how wonderful is God, that God is in control of people's destiny. God is in control of people's salvation. It's according to his timing, you see. So I come back to only about 20% of the world's population even remotely identify themselves as Christian. And yet we have this verse in Second Peter 3 and verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, man has a free will, and some will perish. But my question is, what is God's will? Well, right here it is. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, Paul Harvey had the rest of the story, <clears throat> and God has the rest of the story also. Untold millions have died without ever having an opportunity for salvation. You know, the last great day, and the last great day is one of the holy days that I keep. And I know that, man, you know, mainstream churchianity has rejected God's annual holy days. 
and they have substituted their own holidays for celebrating God, and that's not good because the holy days are revelatory. But what the holy days reveal, especially the last great day, it reveals how and when people will have their chance for salvation. And it's just a shame that mainstream churches have rejected the holy days of God because they are so revelatory. And when I talk about a chance for salvation, a lot of people will say, oh, you're talking about a second chance. No, no, I'm not. I'm talking about a first chance according to God's timing, which involves more than one resurrection. So the rest of the story, Revelation 20, verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has a part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Yeah, everybody wants to be a part of the first resurrection. I mean, all Christians want to be a part of that first resurrection. But you see, there's another resurrection. There's another resurrection that people are going to come up in. In Job 14 and verse 14, it says, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. You will call and I will answer thee. You will have a work. You will have a desire to the work of your hand. Job looked at himself as an unfinished work. You know, there's a lot of unfinished works out there. If you want to see them, uh, go visit a cemetery and just look across the landscape. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of unfinished work. Because surely you're not gullible enough as you look across the landscape of a cemetery to believe that every one of those people, headstones, that they were all saved. You don't actually, you know, in your heart of heart, you know that's not true. They are, a lot of them are, an unfinished work. I believe that every sinner who God has shut up in unbelief will get his day of salvation in a future resurrection. And that really is the good news of the gospel. You know, the gospel means good news. Instead of 80% of human wastage burning in a lake of fire forever, no, everybody will get their chance for salvation according to God's timing. If you would like more information or if you have any questions, write to Is That Really in the Bible? 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia 24151. Or visit us on the web at isthatreallyinthebible.net. For more information, check us out online at isthatreallyinthebible.net. Listen to the podcast, watch the weekly program. Worship with us on our weekly Sabbath service. And be sure to visit our free bookstore. Again, the website is isthatreallyinthebible.net.